Thank you, Evan. Great job. Take your Bibles, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 13 this morning. Luke chapter 13. You know what a pulpit committee is, right? Pulpit committee is a committee that's tasked with replacing a pastor when one resigns. Don't get excited. I'm not, exi- I'm not resigning. We'll get your hopes up. But I did read a definition of a pulpit committee that I wanted to share with you. A pulpit committee has been defined as a group of people in search of a man who will be totally fearless and uncompromising as he tells them exactly what they want to hear. The truth is that no one likes to hear that we need to make changes in our lives. If you listen closely to some of our most popular television preachers of our day, you'll notice that they tend to avoid talking about sin and repentance and judgment. But Jesus was not so. In Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, we read these words. There were present at that season some who told him, him being Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood, Pilate, had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered such things. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will always likewise perish. This is a difficult passage. I'm sure that some of the people who heard Jesus speaking that day were asking themselves, I wonder why Jesus is in such a bad mood. But Jesus spoke with such directness because he cares and because he knew that people could not become right with God until first they recognized they were headed in the wrong direction. No one is saved until first they are convinced that they are lost. One pastor was preaching on the the subject of suffering. And he said that he had one lady who wrote him a note that said, Pastor, I never knew what suffering was until I heard you preach. Now I know. Some preaching is like suffering. I I understand. Once a long-winded preacher had been going on and on for about an hour... And he didn't seem anywhere near close to ending until he suddenly said, I'm really on a roll here and there's a lot more I'd like to say, but Jesus has just told me to stop. So let's end the service. Jesus has told me to end my message. And so the song leader got up and led the congregation in, what a friend we have in Jesus. I hope you don't feel that way this morning. I want us to ask and attempt to answer three questions this morning. First of all, why does God allow 
tragedies. One day after every disaster, people began asking the same unanswerable questions. Who's to blame for what happened? Why did God allow it to happen? The problem of evil and suffering is one of life's most perplexing puzzles. There is even a branch of study called theodity. It seeks to answer the simple question, if God is entirely good and entirely powerful, why is there suffering? If God is in control, there must be a reason for these things to happen. Billy Graham was speaking at the National Day of Prayer following the 9-11 tragedy called by President Bush being held in the National Cathedral September the 14th, 2001. He said, I've been asked hundreds of times in my life why God allows tragedy and suffering I have to confess that I really do not know the answer totally, even to my own satisfaction. I have to accept by faith that God is sovereign and that he is a God of love and mercy and compassion, even in the midst of suffering. We're first first in our text this morning faced with a terrible atrocity. Apparently, according to verse 1, Pilate, the Roman administrator, had some religious pilgrims from Galilee executed as they came into the temple in Jerusalem to offer sacrifice. It was probably one of the three annual Jewish holidays, holy days, perhaps even Passover. We don't know any more about this event than what is reported here in scripture. But Pontius Pilate was known for his cruelty. The crowd may have wanted to to know if Jesus was willing or interested in getting involved with righting this terrible injustice. Jesus, in verse 2, identifies their assumption. He knew... what they were thinking, although they had never vocalized this question. He says, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? The Jews of that day held to a theology of sin and suffering, that whenever something terrible happened to someone, it must be their own fault. Bad things happen to bad people. It was thought in that day, and sometimes in our own, by the way, that somehow those who suffer these tragedies are more deserving of God's judgment, whereas the fact that those who were spared meant that they were somehow more pleasing in God's sight. We find an example of such thinking recorded in the Bible. When Job suffered the many calamities that he suffered in his life, 
his so-called friends came to him and scolded him, saying, Consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the, whoever were the upright ever destroyed? The disciples of Jesus were guilty of the same behavior when they ran across a man who had been blind from birth in John chapter 9. They asked the question, Teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he be born blind? Both Job's friends and the disciples assumed that the suffering was the result of someone's sin. The significance is that Jesus was using current events to make a spiritual application. Today, we might use a modern tragedy, such as the terrorist attack in September the 11th or the, the result of the flood in New Orleans after the Hurricane Katrina and ask, were those who died more guilty than those who survived? R.C. Sproul wrote, in effect, what Jesus was saying was this, you people are asking the wrong question. You should be asking, why didn't that tower fall on my head? The clarification and application is found in verse 3. He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. The point that Jesus was making was not that these Galileans were innocent. It was that they were not more guilty than others. All were and are guilty of sin. It is true that sin sometimes leads to tragedy, but not all tragedies are the result of sin. This passage reminds us of that truth. It reminds us to beware of making hasty judgments when something tragic happens to someone else. Some tragedies one can see as a result of bad decisions. But there are others for which we have no explanation. But that does not mean that there is no explanation. It only means that we do not know or we do not understand the explanation. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In Daniel Defoe's classic book, Robin Crusoe, Robinson Crusoe is shipwrecked on an island, and he discovers a native, and he names it Friday. He teaches him to speak English, and he teaches him about God and about the importance of trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. One of, in one of their theological discussions, Friday asked Robinson Crusoe, but if God much strong, much more than devil, why God not kill devil so make him do no more evil? Pretty good question. Crusoe's reply was, you may as well ask why God no kill you and me for the wicked things we do. 
Jesus mentioned two disasters that very well known in his day. One was an evil act done by the hands of a man, and other seemingly a natural disaster. We see that one in verse 4. Or those 18 who were killed when the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse sinners? In fact, the word translated sinners here is literally debtors. Are they more in debt to God than others? This must have been an accident, an incident which was both recent and well known. In both groups, people died. In both groups, they died quickly and unexpectedly and tragically. In both groups, they died in a place and at a time when they felt safe. While in the former event was deliberate, this one was accidental. But in both cases, the individuals were no worse or more sinful than the lives of those who were spared. We simply do not have the right to make moral judgments that are based on someone's suffering. Jesus says you will all likewise perish. That is, all men will die. And although some sins are more obvious than others, and some are easier to hide, some sins are worse in this destructive power that they have. But all sin is sin. And even the smallest sin is a violation against the holiness of an infinitely perfect God. All men will die. All men are sinners and all need to repent. So the second question that we look at is then what is repentance? We see, first of all, the need for repentance. Let me establish a truth with you. True repentance is hard. Down through history, man has always shifted blame when it came to conflict. The only way to accept that we have done something evil sometimes is for us to justify it by seeing our actions as a response to what somebody did to us. So now sin becomes someone else's fault, even God's. Do you remember the response when God confronted man with his sin in Genesis chapter 3? Adam's response was, the woman that you gave me, he gave me of the tree and I did eat. Adam first blamed Eve and ultimately he blamed God. It was the woman, the one you gave me. Well, let's look at the nature of repentance. Some believe that repentance is sorrow for your sin. And although sorrow is an element of repentance, it is not in and of itself repentance. 
Others believe that repentance is a work of merit, soothing thing that we, we do to make ourselves acceptable in God's presence. But true repentance is the recognition that we have no merit that will make us acceptable to God. To repent means to change your mind and to change your behavior. It is a word that means to turn. The change of your mind that results in a change in your direction. To repent means you turn from sin and you turn to Jesus. So to put it in practical terms, if you're really repenting about driving too fast, you purposely slow down. If you are really repentant about saying unjust and unproven things about someone, then you will stop spreading untrue things about people. True repentance involves a change. Repentance is not just a single action, however. It is a lifestyle. An interesting note about what Jesus says about repentance twice In the proverb, Jesus says, unless you repent, unless you repent. Jesus, in fact, mentions two kinds of repentance. The verb tense that we're going to look at in just a few moments in verse 5 is aorist tense, which means you have done something and it is once for all time. But the verb used in verse 3 says is a present active tense, which means a continuing repentance in your life. You have a repentance in your life that is past and is forever good, but there is another repentance that comes about daily as you recognize new sin comes into your life. It's dealt with in 1 John verse one, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We know, of course, that we are forgiven totally at the point of salvation, including all future sins. Why then do we need to be forgiven again for sin after salvation? The believer's life is to be marked by continual confession of sin. It begins at salvation when we acknowledge our sin to God and ask for forgiveness and cleansing. But as the believer confesses his sin and experiences ongoing forgiveness and cleansing... When a believer sins, he does not lose his forgiveness and the cleansing that he got at salvation. So how does one reconcile the comprehensive nature of God's forgiveness at salvation with the continual need for confession? Perhaps we see a model in the example of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. When Jesus told Peter, he who is bathed 
needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. The bath represents the cleansing applied at salvation, completely and forever justifying us in the presence of God. Therefore, the believer needs only to confess and to lay aside sin in their daily lives by ridding themselves of dirt that we get living in this world. The third and final thing this morning we want to look at is how does this apply to me? Jesus tells a parable, which is a story with a spiritual meaning. He says in verse 6, he also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, and if not after that, you can cut it down. The central lesson of verses one through five is repent. And now the parable given in verses 6 through 9 takes the call to repentance one step further. Repent now. First of all, in verse 6, we see the design. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it. The owner of the vineyard planted the fig tree. He planted it in the vineyard as an indication of the spirit privilege that it was being given, the privileged place where it was being located. The owner, however, expected that the fig tree would produce fruit. But year after year, he looked and it yielded no fruit. So we see the disappointment in verse seven, for three years, I've come seeking fruit. And in this fig, in this fig tree and find none. Think about the implications of this parable. The owner of the farm is God. The fig tree is Israel. God is ready to cut it down because after three years, it has produced no fruit. But God is able to give it one more season to produce. I believe that the parable primarily applied to Israel who was rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and as a result would come under national judgment. The three years of the parable may refer to the three years of Jesus in their midst, telling them a means of salvation. There has been sufficient time for them to come and to bear the fruit of repentance But in just a few more months, Jesus will go to the cross. Israel has not yet, as a nation, come to repentance and been fruitful by accepting him as the Messiah. God is giving them a little bit longer to repent and accept Jesus. But if they do not bear fruit soon, 
they will be cut down. Jesus' warning that they repent or perish has chilling fulfillment. Within a generation, the citizens of Jerusalem who had not repented and turned to Jesus perished in the the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But what is true of this parable applies not only to Israel, but applies to individual repentance, especially to those of us within the church. So let me conclude with the two final points. The delay. Verse 8, the keeper of the vineyard pleads, saying, let it alone this year until I dig around it and fertilize it. The vineyard keeper appeals to the owner to give him time to dig around the tree and fertilize it in hopes that it would yet bear fruit. Sometimes God digs around the soil in our lives, and that can prove quite painful. Digging around the roots of our lives may involve sickness, sadness, death. Sometimes he turns things over in order to get our attention and to wake us up. Is it possible that God is digging around the roots of your life? Is it possible that God is trying to get your attention? And then finally, there is the destruction in verse 9. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not after that, it shall be cut down. But if not, he says, cut it down. This is a beautiful picture, really, of God's patience and mercy as expressed in Jesus. The writer of Ecclesiastes wrote, because the sentence against evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And in the New Testament, the apostle Peter wrote, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I think of this in the term, the grace period. In the world of insurance, some insurance policies have what is called a grace period. That is, if you don't pay your premium on time, the insurance company will extend your coverage for a short period of time in hopes that you will pay the premium. But if you do not pay the premium, the grace period runs out, then the policy will be canceled. God has a grace period too. And if you have not repented of your sins and accepted Jesus as your Savior, you're in it now. But God's patience is demonstrated, but it is also demonstrated that God's patience will not endure forever. So whatever you do, don't presume on the patience of God The writer of Proverbs warns, he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy.
Let's pray. Most of us, Father, know what it's like to have a, <laughs> the roots of our life dug around. And sometimes we've witnessed in our lives, our lives being turned upside down, with sadness or sickness or death. And sometimes we responded and, and turned to you, and other times we have not. Father, if there's one here, that you've been digging around the roots of their life, seemingly turning their lives upside down, help them to see that it is you trying to get their attention, trying to get them to understand how much you love them and how much you would love for them to be in a right relationship with you. If there's one here that doesn't know you, then Father, I pray that they use this time Maybe they've recognized for the first time that they really are a sinner, just like all the rest of us, and that there's nothing they can do that will make themselves acceptable in your sight, but that your son Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done. He went to the cross of Calvary, and there he paid for our sins. But that payment being made has to be applied in our lives. We have to accept what Jesus has done, repent of our sins, and accept him as our Savior. For those of us who are saved, we know we're saved. And help us to often reflect <clears throat> on the terrible cost that you have paid for that salvation. And help us to live our lives in the light of that. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.